You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Aaron Wilder. Aaron, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Aaron, we're talking about your show that's opening January 5th at Amos Eno Gallery. Um, let's jump right into it. Uh, Omission Rituals was uh, the, the title that really that really caught me and, and seems to kind of read some of what this show is about. Can you tell me a little bit about that title, which is, which is really interesting, Omission Rituals? Sure, yeah. Um, the, a lot of my work over the past several years um, has had to do with things that are missing, um, either from my own memory or um, uh, things that I withhold, some information that I withhold from, from someone who's looking at my work. And I didn't necessarily realize I was doing that. Um, it was kind of subconscious. And um, through a few conversations with folks over the last um, year, basically, I started to realize that what was a connecting thread to pretty much all of my work, other than it um, being an investigation of identity and social constructions, was also this idea of, of things being missing. Um, and also this ritualistic nature of my practice, very regimented and also um, looking at similar things multiple times and still not really knowing the full picture. Um, so I started to see that as a, as a thread through, like I said, all my practice, but really particularly through the work that I had been wanting to share in this exhibition. And, and that, you know, that, that's so interesting, the, the idea of, um, which as you said, has been a thread in your work for a while of kind of, you know, n not remembering is, is something that, of course, you know, or, or omitting certain areas and trying to recover them is, is a really interesting phenomenon, right? It's something that, that we all do to some, some extent and have a, uh, you know, interesting ways of compensating for that, like um, like embellishing memories or filling in areas that, you know, uh, didn't actually exist. For for you, is it? Um, this has been the case for for a while. You, you in a sense that it it seems like you're you're talking about memories unreliability. Is this is this something that you've always thought about? It is it more like a, a philosophical notion, or is it also uh, like biological? It's, um, I'd say it's biological and um, social or psychological. Um, and what I mean by that is that particularly um, when I was in grad school for, uh, at the San Francisco Art Institute, um, I had been working on sort of this exploration of things from my uh, personal archives, so old photographs, um, letters, things like that, and... Uh, one of those was photographs my sister took of a car after I had been in a car accident when I was 17 years old. And um, something that I realized at that point was that due to a, a concussion that I suffered as a part of that car accident, my biological function of remembering has been a little faulty um, and so at that time, I started looking more into this and started investigating more um, 
about my relationship to my own memory and its unreliability, as you said. Um, and the more I looked into it, the more I investigated, the more I realized that um, social aspects and psychological aspects are probably at least as impactful as the car accident on my memory. Um, so what I mean by that is um, how one is socialized. Um, so I grew up in Arizona and um, in a bit of a conservative environment, and uh, I grew up queer and closeted, and so that um, also impacted, I think, my inability to remember some things or, or some things that were sort of stuffed uh, because I didn't want to know or didn't want to deal with them. Um, so I think that it's a multiple layer, there's multiple layers of um, these memory challenges that I've been investigating. Thanks for sharing that. You know, that's, um, that's really fascinating. And, and to, to talk about some of the work and how it intersects with that, there's, a, there's one image of what looks like a, a shoreline, a beach, and, and then superimposed on it is a kind of building blocks or a building set, which mm -hmm. uh, I, I can imagine how that relates. But can you tell me a little bit about that image in, in the context of what we're discussing? Sure, yeah. So the, um, the image you're referencing is from um, a project that's called Neither Sand Nor Rock. Um, and it's an investigation of these aspects of social construction and identity and how that relates to uh, a sense of someone's gender and, um, and how they sort of relate to their parents. Um, so the series is a juxtaposition of black and white film photographs um, that I've been working on for, since 2015 that are superimposed onto them are these photographs of building blocks at various stages of completeness or incompleteness. Um, and I've sort of done them in, in several iterations. Um, there's four sort of, uh, I guess, or you could say sub-series of the project that um, I've been working on since 2016. And um, the original works were sort of in sequence, or sorry, sequential in order um, with either them starting from nothing to being a completed house or starting with a completed house and being deconstructed into nothing. Um, so um, I guess in relation to um, what we're talking about as far as that project goes is um, the process of child rearing um, that I think all of us experience. And um, when we're children, we don't necessarily understand the forces of uh, socialization that are sort of being enacted upon us. And so this is an, an attempt to return to that um, childhood understanding and having uh, psychological or sociological uh, phenomenon revealed through um, play and how that relates to our sense of the world. And that, and that sense of play, of course, in the, in the Neither Sin Nor Rock um, series, I mean, sometimes there's, there's different titles to them there's, that you've been working with, and one is uh, Daddy's House, and, and, and like you're describing, it's a house that's half-built and Looks like it's made out of Legos. I'm not sure. I'm mean, not, 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 not Legos, but um, Lincoln Logs. Lincoln Logs, right? yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that's really cool. And uh, I just recently found out that what was it Frank Lloyd Wright's son invented that. And um, and so it's just, it's kind of amazing sort of memory that so much of us may have, or I have like distant memories of that. But in, in this uncompleted house um, called Daddy's House, which is part of this series, uh, is is that referencing also what you're saying? It seems very specific because we're talking about Daddy's House. We're talking about what something it sounds like a child would say and, and a child would build. Um, but the image behind it in that case is is of trees there, there of a place mm-hmm. where this house couldn't be just like the other one of um, being on the beach. So is the, is the displacement of that also part of what you're, you're saying? I mean, I understand that the partly built and, 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 and missing parts and, and childhood rearing, but the images that they're contrasted with is, with is what I'm asking about too, how those right. become what they are. Yeah. So the, um, so what you're referencing is the, um, partially built or partially deconstructed um, toy houses are sort of floating above a landscape photograph. And it's, you know, um, the whole series is uh, looking at the impossibility of this, if this were a partially constructed house, how it's positioned on the background photograph is impossible. Like it's not something that is uh, meant to look realistic. It's sort of like a forced, um, uh, forced placement of this idea of a house or a home um, in these different types of backgrounds. And so uh, the uh, black and white photographs are from a number of different projects, uh, completely different projects um, that I uh, had mostly been working on in, in 2015 and a little bit later. Um, and I was looking at these sequences of mommy's house and daddy's house in, in sort of divergent backgrounds. And so the ones um, referring to daddy's house are in a little bit more of uh, rustic, I guess you could say, landscapes. So farmland, um, uh, sort of ocean landscapes. And then um, the ones uh, related to mommy's house would be more urban. Um, so they're either in places that have already been um, under construction in kind of an urban area or they're flagged like there's one that has these little uh, flags in the ground that are basically marking um, landscape to be removed to be converted into housing or, or some other sort of building um, and those different sequences um, are yeah so sort of relating to an urban and a rural landscape as a not necessarily a dichotomy, but perhaps two um, opposite ends of a spectrum. And it also relates to the title of the project, Neither Sand Nor Rock, which is a meditation on the uh, children's Sunday school song, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock, which is, of course, a metaphor for um, Christianity and um, all that sort of goes along with that. And, and, and speaking of, of Christianity, you know, there's, there's other um, images that you've, that you've made um, previously uh, that, were, that were in a, a chapel. Um, I forgot the exact name, Explicative Chapel, I believe, and there was Explicative mm-hmm. uh, Building Blocks. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about those. I, I imagine in some ways that, that, that is about the process of, of as you were saying, you know, being queer, 
and 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 also struggling with kind of um, oppressive structures uh, that that are kind of schooling you in a completely different way, in, in, in a way that's mm-hmm. um, you know the kind of the antithesis of, of of freedom. But but maybe I'm reading that into it. Um, it's 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 you know they're, they're beautiful images and the idea of you know kind of explicative chapel is really interesting because it's it's both kind of you know um, I, I don't know kind of the opposite of what you'd imagine would happen in a chapel right these kind of uh, explicatives but also it's a, it's a pushback in some way right it's a critique and and a, and a painful memory perhaps yeah the um the project you're referencing expletive is um, something that evolved over a long period of time and manifested itself in different media. It started out as these um, 12 by 12 square drawings that I basically was taking derogatory slurs and in a way deconstructing or attempting to remove their power by obscuring them. So I took um, many different derogatory slurs and stacked the letters on top of each other using stencils so that you couldn't actually read what the word is. And it looks kind of like this geometric um, jumble of shapes. And that was kind of just exploratory for me as far as um, trying to disempower these um, really negative words. And um, the drawings didn't really feel like the ultimate manifestation of the project. And so I kept working on them and um, I made these, uh, sorry, four of those drawings I should mention, uh, I include in omission rituals at Amosina Gallery. And then um, I started making these sculptural um, cubes that are referencing child's alphabet blocks. Um, But instead of being small, they're a cubic foot, so they're much larger. And instead of having individual letters on each side, they have one of these deconstructed slurs um, on their six sides. And um, those, the series of seven uh, sculptures that I made are also included in our mission rituals. And The other thing I'll mention that is more specifically related to uh, religion or Christianity are the um, stained glass or what are designed to look like stained glass windows, but instead of the light coming from outside in, it's coming from inside radiating out. And so the light is sort of illuminating these deconstructed slurs. And um, I created these prototypes for what I was referring to as reverse stained glass windows um, out of LED frames. And they were just meant to be prototypes to sort of see, um, you know, uh, how, it was, how it would look and, and things like that. And um, the prototypes themselves didn't really seem to work or didn't seem to be the ultimate manifestation of the project. But in 2019, um, I had an opportunity to do an installation at the Inside Out in Sacramento, California, uh, which is in um, a historically queer neighborhood, Lavender Heights. And I used the windows of the space to create these reverse stained glass windows. So um, I converted uh, four of the windows into these deconstructed slurs that had light shooting sort of out uh, into, the, into the street. 
And that, to me, um, seemed to be the ultimate manifestation of the project. Um, and so I mentioned that because um, uh, you were asking about sort of religion and Christianity and how it sort of relates to these deconstructed slurs. Um, in my experience, um, being brought up in, in a sort of Southern Baptist um, kind of environment um, while being secretly queer, uh, there was a disconnect in the moralizing nature of the religious environment I was within and um, actually the very negative aspects, not just um, uh, internalized homophobia, but also um, actual hurtful things that people say in many of these uh, extremely religious environments. And so... I'm sorry, I started to ramble. What was your question again? No, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, well, I was, it's, really, it's really interesting what you're saying, but, but I was talking about just that, that connection to, mm-hmm. um, you know, queerness and, 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 and these, those images and, 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 that, and that struggle and that, and that often pain and difficulty of, of, the, of the church itself and those doctrines and the, and the kind of pushback and, and pain that that entailed, but I think I think that's that's exactly what you were just addressing, and and, and, and not really diverging from that. You were you were you were pretty clear about that. I mean, and, and and please say something more if you want, but I, but that was the question that you that you answered. Yeah. I think about about the relationship of the, of the church to um, to yourself. And I'll just mention that that um, installation I did in Sacramento in 2019. The whole project was called Expletive Chapel. Um, as it was um, meant to house sort of inside. The space is a very strange art space. It's like a bay window, basically, um, that, you, that visitors can't actually go in. They can just see in the windows from the street. And the large window in the middle was meant to be sort of a portal that people could look into a, a reliquary of um, queer artifacts. And so I interviewed some people um, that are a part of or somehow related to the queer community in Sacramento and also did some research at the Lavender Library, which is down the street from the inside out. And um, I sort of had these objects related to individual stories about their experience um, sort of growing up um, either uh, gay or trans. Um, and I painted them lavender and then put them in the space as kind of this uh, revered uh, reliquary um, that people could look into and see these different objects. And then the side windows, as I mentioned, had the light coming from inside out through the deconstructed slurs. And so there was a lot I was thinking about with um, the name inside out, but also just the space. And the prototypes I mentioned, those LED frames, I'd never actually exhibited those before. They were just meant to be um, tests, I guess you could say. Um, But I decided to include them in the show Emission Rituals because um, it seemed it just seemed um, appropriate to to show them at some point, and so they're on display as well with the blocks. Well, I'm I'm so glad we talked about that, and um, and I want to wish you well with Mission Rituals, and um, and you know for all those listening, there's links here so they can come see it. It's running through January 29th in 2023. I, I want to ask you a little bit more about. Um, your curatorial practice, because you're, you're, of course, an artist, and that's what we're talking about, but you're also uh, a curator at the Roswell Museum. Is that correct? 
Yes. So, so tell me a little bit about that. How, how did that happen, and, and, and what, do you, what do you do there exactly? It's, it's, I've read about the museum, and it's such an unusual one in terms of its uh, federal creation and more. Um, yeah, tell me about your, your work there. Sure, yeah. So um, my position at the Roswell Museum is curator of collections and exhibitions, and I started there just a little over a year ago. Um, my curatorial practice, I, I always think of it as an extension of my artistic practice. Um, and instead of making my own work, I am exercising an artistic practice through the work of others. And that is um, either in uh, work of contemporary artists um, or a work that is in the museum's collection. Um, and so my uh, curatorial practice originated in, I'd say, probably let's see, 2009. Um, I had my own art space in downtown Phoenix um, uh, in, a, in an artist collective called Holga's that sadly no longer exists. Um, but I had a sort of storefront space um, that I intended to exhibit my own work, and I did. Um, but it was also sort of the beginning of, collaborating with other artists and showing the work of other artists along with mine in that space. Um, and so I got really interested in um, how work of other artists could say things that my work can't. Um, and I thought that was a really powerful um, sum of different parts and continued being interested in that. And then when I was at studying my, um, or in my MFA program at San Francisco Art Institute, uh, I took every opportunity I could to work with other artists, whether that was um, collaborating on, a, on an actual artistic object or series of photographs, um, but also curating other people's work together without my work. And that um, I continued to have different sort of curatorial experiences um, here and there, and I started working more and more as a curator as far as like a paid job. Um, and yeah, the, the pandemic kind of threw a bunch of wrenches, not a, just one wrench, but a whole toolbox, um, into that process of um, wanting to be a curator in addition to my artistic practice or a parallel to my artistic um, works. And the Roswell Museum opportunity sort of arose at a time when I was questioning whether or not I would continue in the curatorial field. And I was kind of given this amazing opportunity and it's been really, um, it's been a really wonderful experience and learning experience, not just uh, in um, being sort of new to, to Roswell, New Mexico, but also being embedded in the very vibrant artistic community of Roswell. There's a very well-established residency program there that's been around since uh, 1967, and so it's um, incredible working with the resident artists and also um, the who are referred to as the alumni of the residency program who who have stayed in Roswell and have built a, a fantastic uh, community there. That's exciting. It's really exciting, and um, I'm, I'm glad you shared that with me because that's uh, yeah, that's that's fascinating to me. And of course, an important part of of your practice. Um, before we go, I want to ask you one more question, a little off topic, but I'm always curious what everybody's reading. What are you reading at the moment? Well, my, um, my reading has been a little um, 
disrupted uh, over the past year. During the pandemic, I, I lived, and this is like a whole other side story that uh, we don't have time to talk about, but I, I lived in Chicago for a year and a half, basically during the pandemic, um, and I actually read a lot um, in that year and a half. But then since then, um, both because of preparing for this exhibition in Brooklyn, but also um, being a curator of a museum uh, is very uh, engrossing. Like it is, it's intellectual work, but it's actually also very time consuming. Um, and so everything I was reading were things related to the exhibitions I was curating for the most part um, and not really reading from my own personal um, sense. But um, the book that I had started reading over the last um, month or so is called For Your Own Good, which is um, a book by Alice Miller, who's a Swiss psychologist. Um, and I'm reading it. Uh, it's a book that's basically about um, the socialization process of child rearing and um, the, the impacts of that. And so I've read a lot of Alice Miller's books, um, both for me personally, uh, as far as understanding my own psychological processes, but uh, even more so um, how those projects manifest themselves societally um, and how that may or may not impact um, my curatorial work and just overall uh, education about the world. Aaron, thanks so much for, for sharing that with me and as well as this discussion on your work. I, I want to wish you well in this, in this coming show, and I hope the listeners who can come see it, there's links in here to do so. Aaron, again, thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. <laughs>